Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we listen to this story of resurrection, it's a story with which, on one hand, it's 2,000 years old, and at the same time, we can still identify this story has everything in it. Fear, despair, despondency, suspense, hope, surprise, joy. It's a complex story. And we come to this moment with a mixture and variety of different emotions and experiences swirling around inside each of us. We come to this moment hopeful and despairing, joyful and depressed, Faithful, believing, trusting, cynical, doubtful, skeptical, 
Come to this moment rested and with a new vigor, new energy, a new life. Come to this moment exhausted, fatigued, uncertain. However we find ourselves right now, help us to see that you know us in all our complexity, in all our experiences, in all the ways we have it together, in all the ways we're coming undone. And your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see the hardest thing of all and trust and believe that you love us this much. So teach us now by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. Send us out to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go, we pray in your name. Amen. You know, this morning when I woke up, I went outside with a cup of coffee on my front porch and saw the fog rolling down 29th Street. And I loved it. See, the fog means a lot to me for many reasons. I spent a lot of time living in San Francisco, so I think it's become part of my bones. But even beyond that, fog has become a pretty big metaphor for my life, for some of the most significant moments. I remember a time in 2002 when I had just graduated from the University of San Diego, and there was a pathway before me that had a few different turns before it. I could go into some sales stuff, I could go into some business stuff, I could go into some ministry stuff. And I remember sitting down at La Jolla Cove with a cup of coffee, and closing my eyes and praying. And in the time my eyes were closed, the fog had completely rolled in. And I remember in my prayer and meditation that moment saying to God, I feel like this is what my life is like. I know that there's an ocean in front of me, I just can't see it. I know there's a future in front of me, I just can't see it. And candidly, life's been like that ever since. <laughs> that's a lot of what it's like to be a human being, to live in the fog where you can't always make sense of everything that's going around you. Often you can make sense of it in hindsight as you look back and you go, oh, that's what was going on. And I think right now that might be a good metaphor for our particular experience with sheltering in place, with social distancing, with this pandemic, and it's like living in a fog. Because it's not only we're going to get through this and we're going to come out the other side, it's we don't know when the other side will come or what it will look like. Earlier I cited this article by Sandy Dolby in our local publication, the San Diego Union Tribune, and she meets with Marianne Williamson, who is a, um, kind of a self-help guru and blogger and author, and Marianne Williamson talks about, like, what do you do when you're in a fog like this? And I thought it was intriguing. She says, the first step to making peace with fear is acceptance. It's appropriate to be depressed when a situation is depressing, she said. It's appropriate to be heartbroken when a situation is heartbreaking. And it's appropriate to be horrified when a situation is this horrifying. She goes on to say, so first of all, she validates your feelings of your experience. It's okay to hold those feelings. In fact, it's healthy. She says, we also need to realize we're in this together. And third, to realize that love is to fear what light is to the darkness. Where there is light, darkness cannot be. And where there is love, fear cannot be. This was in the newspaper this morning. And that's exactly what we see in our scripture reading for today. Where Jesus is walking with these two friends who are navigating the fog of life, who are navigating disappointment and uncertainty. 
And it's realizing they're in the perfect presence of love that actually drives out their fear. That's what we're going to look into this morning. The other thing I noted as we gathered today is we're experiencing Easter, but in a season of global depression with this pandemic. And I think that's actually the situation in which the majority of Christians have experienced Easter for 2,000 years. Whether it's war or famine or poverty or fear or oppression, to be a Christian means to look for the light of Jesus' resurrection even in the midst of the very real disappointment and difficulty of this life. You hold those two together. We live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, and we live in a world that God has invaded with his love and his resurrection power and has birthed a new creation in the midst of the old. It's a both and. It makes sense of the complex experience we all have. And you know what? A time like this, at least in my experience and the people I've spoken with, many of you, uh, around this part of the pandemic is when we all kind of lean into our unhealthy coping mechanisms. Whether it's overfunctioning and trying to control whatever we can, or maybe it's shutting down and just going to sleep on the whole thing. Maybe it's medicating ourselves and going back to old addictions and ways that we cope with difficulty in life. But the other thing that it can do is it gives you a new perspective. It gives you a new focus. At least it gives you the opportunity for a new perspective and a new focus, a new way to see altogether. So that's what we're going to look at today. On Easter Sunday, we saw Jesus' main theme was do not be afraid. Last week, we saw Jesus' main theme of the resurrection is peace be with you. And today, he teaches these two friends on the road, along with you and me, how to see in an entirely new way, even in the midst of our fears. But it asks you the question, from the beginning, what has captured your attention in life? What are you focused on? Because what we see here is it is possible that God is closer to you than you could possibly imagine, and you miss him altogether. What are you focused on? What's capturing your attention? One philosopher wrote, the task of life is to become fully awake. Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. See, we can live life by sleepwalking through it. And I think this is one of the aspects of this pandemic. It's shaking us and waking us up. We can live life by sleepwalking with movement, but no real attention, no real focus. We're just kind of walking one day at a time with no particular direction or aim. I had a counseling professor in seminary. When you call on his voicemail, his outgoing voicemail would say, at the sound of the tone, Please answer these two questions. Who are you and what do you want? And lest you think I'm being rude, let me remind you, most people go through life without answering those two questions. Who are you and what do you want? How do you answer those questions? See, we can miss a lot in life. So let's look in our time we have together at how to miss Jesus, how to find him, and then how to follow him. First, how to miss Jesus. It's really easy to miss him. I mean, these are two friends who on the first day of the week uh, missed walking. That, that road to Emmaus was seven miles and not on a sidewalk. It took a very, very long time. 
But what had happened earlier that day, actually, let's back up. What had happened three days prior on Good Friday was Jesus, their friend and leader and teacher, who was to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was brutally murdered on a cross. And their hopes were completely dashed, understandably. But on this morning, the first day of the week, earlier that day, some women had gone to the tomb. We talked about this last week. And they came back reporting the tomb is empty, and yet Jesus' friends considered it an idle tale. They didn't believe it. And so here are these two friends walking away from Jerusalem toward Emmaus. They are literally, geographically, walking away from the resurrection. They're walking back to the way it used to be. They're walking back to their old jobs and their old homes. They're giving up hope. They're saying, we hoped, but it didn't happen. So I guess it's plan B or plan C. They're walking away. Now, it's easy for me, at least, to identify and empathize with these two walking away. I mean, their experiences and expectations had turned to dust and ashes. They're sad because they're disappointed. In verse 21, they say, we had hoped he was the one. On one hand, there's a rational disappointment. Dead people tend to stay dead. He's gone. It's finished. I mean, you and I, in in the year 2000, we might have a more sophisticated scientific understanding and medical inquiry and, you know, ways of amassing scientific data of biology. But they knew back then, when a man is nailed to a Roman cross and bleeding out publicly and killed and then buried, you are not going to run into him on a road to Emmaus three days later. It was very rational for them to say, it's all over. It's almost like Luke, the gospel writer, anticipates this objection. And he says, you know, we were the last people to expect to see him on the road. It's almost like he's, he's like breaking the, the fourth wall and tapping the, the screen and saying, hey, you post-enlightenment, you know, more modern thinkers, you, you think that you have a better understanding of the world than we did back then. But let me remind you, it was just as hard for us to accept the veracity of the resurrection as it is for you. And so Luke does you and me a great service. And he begins to start naming names. He says, you want to know who was there? Cleopas was there. You can go ask him. In the Gospel of John, in the narrative where Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says the high priest's servant named Malchus was there and had his ear cut off by Peter. Essentially saying, if you want to know, go ask Malchus. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is carrying the cross, a certain man named Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, it says, was the one who helped him carry the cross. And the point is, the Gospel writers are saying, we know the claim of Jesus' resurrection is going to be difficult to absorb and embrace. And so let us start citing our sources. Go back and ask them. Later on, the Apostle Paul is going to write to the city in Corinth. And he's going to talk about 500 people who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And he's essentially saying, you can go ask them. All of these Gospels were written within the life of the people that would have been eyewitnesses to the resurrection. He's saying, empirically, you can go and check the sources. 
In Acts of the Apostles, they chronicle the sociological impossibility of the church beginning. Where overnight, Jews and Greeks, the last two people who would ever believe that Jesus is the Messiah and risen from the dead, overnight, 3,000 people became Christians. Jews, the last people to believe these things because though they believed in Yahweh and a resurrection at the end of time, would have never believed that Yahweh would become a human being and create a resurrection in the midst of human history. And yet, overnight, thousands of Jews reorienting their entire understanding of the world, that Jesus is the true sacrifice to take away all the sacrifices. Jesus is the true temple where we would meet God in person. And if you ask them why, they'd say, because we saw him risen from the dead, and it changed everything. Greeks, who would have been the last people to think that a physical resurrection is something that you would even desire, let alone be possible. The Greeks who believed that the, the ideal afterlife was the a priori existence, you know, liberating the soul from the prison house of this body. But overnight, come to believe in Jesus, the resurrected one, who was physically resurrected, not just spiritually. Entire worldviews don't change overnight. You need to read some books, you need to have some conversations, you need to go to a conference, you need to make sure it's peer-reviewed, you need to write some blog posts, you need to make some comments on other people's blogs. It takes time to change your worldview, and yet overnight, Greeks and Jews' worldview completely changed, and if you ask them why, they would say, because we saw him risen from the dead. Go ahead, check with the eyewitnesses. See, the point is this. If the resurrection of Jesus is just a nice story that we kind of bring out once a year along with the chocolate eggs and the Easter bunny, that might make a nice party. That might make a nice brunch. That will never give you courage or confidence or comfort to face the difficulties of this life. And that will never change the world. But you know it did change the world. A resurrected Messiah walking down the road with two of his friends, convincing him that he really is who he said that he was. And so if you're investigating Christianity, let me just suggest to you that the resurrection is where you start your entire investigation. If he rose from the dead, it changes everything. If he didn't, it changes nothing. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Start with the resurrection. So I invite you, I'm going to be starting getting together with folks who are saying, look, that's where I want to start my questioning. I have a lot of questions, I have a lot of doubts, I've read a lot of things, I want to talk. Please, go to our website, go to the contact form, tell me you want to get in on these conversations because I'd love to have these conversations with you. So they're rationally disappointed. They're also um, disappointed because they say, look, we had hoped he'd be the Messiah, but he was crucified. So on one hand, they had a list of things that he needed to fulfill in order for them to believe and trust him. You know, we needed him to do this and this and this, and then I will believe and trust and follow. The question is, how do you and I follow the same pattern? How do you say to God, you know, if you do this, then I'll believe you and trust you and give you my life. If you provide for my finances, if you provide for my health or the health of a loved one, if you provide for my career or my job, if you provide for my spouse, for my relationships, for my kids, if you do this, then I'll believe 
and trust. Now look, your needs and desires and hopes are important and valid. But when they become the non-negotiable central demand of what God must do or else you will miss the bigger picture of what God is doing in your life and in this world. You can miss the resurrection presence right in your midst. Now here's what's ironic in verse 21. They say, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. God had redeemed Israel before. The story of Passover is the story of God redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt and leading them out into the promised land. And they're saying, we had hoped he would redeem Israel like that. Redeem us from the military oppression of the Roman Empire that's choking us. Redeem us politically. Redeem us economically. Here's the great irony. Is that Jesus could have come as a military, economic, political Messiah and crushed the Roman Empire. And you know what they would have done? They would have done what you and I would have done. They would have enjoyed it. They would have gotten resources. They would have held them for themselves. And they would begin to push down others around them. See, Jesus did redeem Israel, but he went far further. He didn't redeem them from merely military, economic, and political oppression. He redeemed them from sin and death itself. That on a Roman cross, he would die as the unjust collusion between religion and the empire came crashing upon his shoulders. And on the cross, he recycles all that violence into forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, that's the great irony, is that he was redeeming them from something far greater than they could ever imagine. Ending the death spiral of violence itself. But it doesn't look like what we expect it to look like. And so we miss him. Now, that's how to miss Jesus. Now, how to find him. And spoiler alert, you don't find him. He finds you. These two weren't even looking for him. The story of so many Christians' lives, including my own, is not I looked and looked and looked and got my side of the street half clean and then I found him. It's I was wandering and wandering and wandering and he came and found me. And that's the story of these two on the road. Now, this last week I had the great joy of completing a virtual triathlon with my 12-year-old son Benjamin. So shout out to Benjamin, Levi, and Joshua, and Florence, of course. And uh, the Ironman people have put on this virtual triathlon where you do events on your personal tracker and then you upload them into the system and they say, congratulations, you've done it. And so after church last Sunday, I went home and Benjamin and I hopped on the bike and we rode 12 miles down through the harbor and we ran three miles together. We had done the other part the day before. One of my favorite aspects of doing this with Benjamin was just while we're on the road, we did a lot of talking. Talked about our experiences, talked about our fears, talked about our hopes. We congratulated each other, but we came together because we walked together. It really was more walking than running. These two in this story are walking and they're talking. They're pouring out their life story. But as I said, they're walking away from the story. And I love in verse 15 it says, And Jesus himself came near and went with them. Jesus walks with them in the midst of their questioning, their doubting, their fearful, abandoning walk. And he just pulls up and walks with them. 
And as he walks, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't fix them. He just walks with them. A God who walks with scared friends who think they're walking away from him. And he goes, I'll go with you. His character is not to say to them, good riddance. You're not worthy of me. To condemn them, no, as they're walking and talking, Jesus himself came near and went with them. See Jesus pursuing you in all the ways that you walk away. And he goes with you. See him absolutely pursuing you in your questioning, in your doubting, in your wandering, in your rebelling. What if right now he is here and he goes with you? He pursues you. He finds you. Maybe right now you are surprised to see that you woke up on Sunday morning and you've actually tuned into a church service together. And my friends, you wouldn't even be here right now if there wasn't already something going on in your heart, in your soul, in your life, because God is at work. He goes with you. That's why Renew Church is a community that we walk together. We've normalized that we don't need to fix each other. We don't need to be the Bible answer people. We need to be the people who can walk together down the dusty road of uncertainty, trusting that Jesus walks with us. And so we don't fix each other. We encourage each other. We support each other. We care for one another. And just note that the process of spiritual awakening for these two is extraordinarily ordinary. There's no bright, blinding light. There's no voice from the clouds. There's no miracle that's taken place per se. They meet him in the road, and they meet him at this table. He opens the scriptures to them. They supposedly had already heard all the stories. So it's not like he starts by saying, well, there's a guy named Moses, and Moses did some things. They knew the story of Moses. They knew the story of the prophets. But he begins with Moses and all the prophets and shows them how everything in all of Scripture, is about him. See, I'm not going to go too deeply into this today, but it's worth noting there are multiple ways to read Scripture. One way that he doesn't do is to make Scripture, you treat it like Aesop's fables. Aesop's fables, you read a story, there's a moral, and it's always all about you. Right? That's why you don't lie. That's why you don't steal. That's why you don't cheat. But it always ends up to be about you. And people read the Bible that way. You know, it's basic instructions before leaving earth. It's a bunch of different ethics and morals and ways to live a better life before we get to heaven. The only problem with that is it's all about you. And that's not what Scripture is intended to be. Jesus reads Scripture with these two, and he shows them it's all about him. So, if it's all about you, and you read the Bible as a fable with a moral, then you read a story like David and Goliath, and you say, great, I just need more courage, you know? The bigger they are, the harder they fall, and the small one can take out the big one, and I might feel small right now, but I'm going to be strong, and gosh darn it, people are going to like me, and I'm going to do this. And the problem with that is, it's going to exhaust you by noon. But if you can see that even David and Goliath is actually about Jesus, that he is the true David that goes and fights the battle on behalf of his people. He is the true champion that goes surprisingly conquering certain death in a way that nobody saw or could have possibly envisioned. 
That as David's wisdom was imparted to all the people, his wisdom is imparted to you. That as David's courage and bravery went on behalf of all the people, Christ's courage and bravery and perfect record go on behalf of you. Don't you see, now it's not about you, it's about him. And that is the right way to look through the telescope as you're looking at Scripture. He is the ultimate David. He's the ultimate Moses. He's the ultimate temple. He's the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. He is the one to whom all of these other fingers are pointing. Jesus is what the entire Old Testament is pointing at. Moses could be like the moon, and the prophets could be like the stars, but now Jesus, the sun, has actually risen, and you can see by his own light. Jesus is what God is like. Jesus is what God has to say to this world. So, okay, let's think through that lens. That's why at Renew Church, we have a community group that meets on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And even in the midst of this pandemic, we haven't stopped it. We've just moved it on to a Zoom meeting because we need to walk with each other down the road, opening the scriptures and asking these big questions and expecting for him to meet us in the midst of them. And he is. So please do join us on Wednesday night. I remember one friend saying, uh, before he joined a a group uh, like this with us, he actually said it in this very room. He said, Matt, I don't believe these things. I don't not believe these things. I just don't know these things. Could you guys teach me? And I remember our second gathering together as he's reading the Bible and going, I never, ever knew this stuff was in here. I can't believe, this is amazing. Friends, you and I get to have that sort of revelation as we read through the scriptures together with him. And finally, he reveals himself in this meal. Now there's a great, beautiful irony that takes place here. Because the first meal of creation that we know of is in the book of Genesis, where Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And it says when they ate the forbidden fruit, their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. And from there, decay and disunity and disease had echoed throughout creation. But now, on the first day of new creation, the first meal, it says, he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Jesus is creating new creation in the midst of the old, and it radiates outward. Instead of realizing our own brokenness, we realize his salvation and his rescue. That's what we do every time we come to this table. But this table is also a pattern and a metaphor for the Christian life. Just as this bread is taken and blessed and broken and given, so you and I are called to be taken and blessed and broken and poured out on behalf of the world. And then we come back to the table and we receive again. And we go out and we pour ourselves out again. Inhaling the breath of God's spirit and exhaling the renewal that he aims to bring throughout all creation. Now, really quickly, I want to give you how to follow him. Okay? How do you miss him? It's easy. We lose our focus. How do you find him? You don't. He finds you. You respond. How do you respond? First, there's a changed direction. These two had a profoundly changed direction. They start the story walking away from Jerusalem. They encounter Jesus, realize it. They're awakened, and they turn around, and they go back that same hour. There's an entirely new direction of your life. 
I wonder if your life, if this last week was a silent film and you had to watch it on mute and you just, just by the actions of your life, what direction were you walking in? What was driving you? There's a whole new direction. Where do you sense inviting, where do you sense God inviting you to turn around? What are you being invited to turn from? What would it look like to turn toward him? So first, new direction. Second, there's a new mission and a new courage. Because that part where they're walking and they got to where they were staying and they're trying to convince him to come and stay with him that night, everyone who read this story in the original context would know that's just common sense. There are no streetlights. There's, you know, there are, there's no one out there. That is the place of thieves and robbers and violence and the elements and wild animals. You do not want to be out on those roads at night. So these scared people are acting in a scared fashion and they're saying, please get inside because we don't want you to get hurt. And they find out that he is the risen one. He is who he said that he was. And you know what they do? Even in the darkness, they're going to walk back to Jerusalem. They're going to run back that same hour. What was previously fear is now courage because they know the risen one is with them. Friends, right now, even if it doesn't feel like it, even if you can't see him, the invitation to follow Jesus is to be able to say, he's closer to me than the air I breathe, and I have reason for courage and hope, even in the midst of the darkness. I want to give you a couple more. The next thing is they have a new story to tell. They have a whole new narrative for their life. What's, what story is your life telling? They have a new hope. Where they're realizing in the beginning, it's very logical. We thought it was a dead end. We thought he was the one. He wasn't. And then they realize, oh my gosh, if Jesus can conquer death, if his light can invade this darkness, then there are actually no real dead ends. A new hope altogether where you can become more buoyant, more resilient, more hopeful, even in the midst of adversity, like right now. And finally, there's a new peace. Because in the verses that aren't printed, uh, right after this part, Luke tells us what happens next. They run back to Jerusalem. They get back inside the room. They tell all their friends what just happened to them. And Jesus shows up in the room. And the first thing he says is, peace be with you. A new peace altogether. Even in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty and pain and fear. There's a peace, a hope, a new direction, a new story, a new courage. Friends, all of us are on the road to Emmaus right now. All of us have our questions. All of us have our fears and our uncertainties. The task of life right now is to become aware. My prayer for you is that your eyes and mine would be open to see that he's actually walking with you. He would never leave you or forsake you. He actually has good news even in this very moment. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come now to this table, would you feed us and nourish us? Would you fill us with your spirit? And I pray for all of our friends who are a part of this service right now or listening later, who can actually list out their very specific fears, concerns, uncertainty, and needs that's the road. That's the road to Emmaus. I pray that you would meet each of us on that road. Would you open our eyes to your grace and then send us out with a new story to tell, with new courage and new hope. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.